go ahead and have a seat. You know, aren't you thankful for our praise team that have worked so diligently in this strange season? I, will you please clap in a stronger way for me? I think they deserve it. You guys are such a blessing in a hard season to give us this opportunity to worship, and I'm so grateful for them. And I know you are too. It's just wonderful to be together in the Lord's house. Open your Bible to Titus chapter 3. I'm so thankful for this book that gives us a blueprint on how to live our lives before the Lord in a way that is pleasing and glorifying to Him. Titus 2 is a book that is a chapter that is so rich. It gives us a blueprint to show us how we live together as a church. And now as we move to Titus chapter 3, it shows us how we live in the society that God has placed our church. And it is so necessary, it is so needed. Read it with me, Titus chapter 3, the opening eight verses. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil to no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What a word for us. Can I tell you something that I think is so true? When I consider everything that's happening in the world around us, I believe as much as any time before, that this world is changing so quickly. And it's changing in a way that is not moving toward the Lord. Unfortunately, it's moving further and further away from Him. And you can't even watch a basketball game and not feel that to be true. I love this season that we're in right now. March Madness is just a fun time of year for me. Um, and I, have, I, I really love it because uh, spending time in Kentucky... There was always something those 15 years to shout about and be excited about. Our people loved basketball season, especially March. Everything built toward March. And in recent years, I've had a lot to be excited about because the team that I pull for is done exceptionally well. And it's been fun to see. But I tell you, March Madness is always fun. I've always enjoyed it. And I really love it when you have a Cinderella story develop. And it usually happens just about every year. There's a team that comes from an unknown smaller school that slays the Giants on the basketball court. And I love it when it happens. And this year, the Cinderella story has revolved around the Oral Roberts University of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, can I tell you, last night I was bummed. While my friends were at our house, I checked it out as soon as they left. The team that was the Cinderella story, they lost in the very last second. And the ball hit the rim against Arkansas, and they didn't make it. But boy, it was fun to watch because last weekend, the unexpected happened. 
the, this school, Oral Roberts, they took down the highly number two seeded Ohio State Buckeyes. I always love to see them lose. And after getting to watch them beat Ohio State, I got to watch just a couple of days later, they beat a team that made me even more happy to see them defeat because I love it when the Florida Gators lose, don't you? Isn't it great? And, 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 and uh, I can say that and most of you agree, except for Robin Lewis. But everybody else in the room loves to see Florida lose. And I got to see Oral Roberts take down both of those schools. And it was a great Cinderella story. And it was wonderful. And then the news broke that following the next week in anticipation of this weekend's games. And I could not believe the article that was printed in the USA Today. It was written by an author by the name of Hamal Javeri, who wrote an article, and this is the title of it, Oral Roberts University Isn't the Feel-Good March Madness Story That We Need. And what he goes on to write does as good a job of any article that I have written to describe the immense challenge that the Church of the Lord Jesus is facing and where we stand in the LGBTQ debate. Because as he goes on to write that article, he says that schools like Oral Roberts University need to be ashamed because of the standards that they put in their school policies and in their school handbook that are overtly Christian that says that the school stands for a biblical sexual ethic. And this article is writing to say anyone who believes like Oral Roberts University should not just be chastised by our culture, but they should be disallowed from participating in events like the NCAA March Madness Tournament. And they called for a removal of any school that would espouse these kind of Christian views. They use words in that article like schools of this nature believe in that which is built on toxic notions of fundamentalism. Goes on to say that schools who hold these kind of standards go against, and I quote the article, basic values of human decency. And so you can't even watch a basketball game without knowing there are so many things happening in our culture that are moving so many people away from the eternal truths of the Word of God. And the question that we have to ask as believers living in this present context is how then do we respond because this kind of systemic rejection of Christianity isn't just happening in academia. It's not just happening in the far-off places of Tulsa, Oklahoma, that we all just need to get in our cars and drive out there to support that school. It's happening right around us. It's happening within the very laws that are governing our city as they are being changed and shaped by this kind of thinking. And that's why I believe this shift is happening faster than we could have ever imagined. So what is it that Christians are called to do? And thankfully, God gives us an answer. Titus chapter 3 is one of the most beautiful and important texts for the church of today to consider as we think about how we live in the midst of a culture and a society that's doing away with Christianity. As we live in a day that I'll just go ahead and tell you, Culturally, Christianity no longer exists in Smyrna, Georgia. It is a different day that we live in today. And as we consider the reality of what it is that we face, do we get angry? Do we get mad? 
Do we look at people that we are called to reach as if they are our enemies? What is it that we are to do so that we can walk in the Spirit and live in a way that brings glory and honor to Jesus in the face of the challenges that we're in? And I love the way that, cult, that this text in Titus chapter 3 answers all of these questions for us. We don't have to wonder. Now, when you read this text, know that it is speaking in a context of a place that knew what it was to be a church in an unchristian society. That was true of the island of Crete, just as it is true for us today. It's an island that was the legendary birthplace of Zeus. It was built on pagan belief and pagan ideologies. And not only were these, as historians describe them, to be brutish people, people that you could not trust, known for their lack of honesty and integrity. The people who lived on the island were also prone to false teaching. The churches were infiltrated. The ranks had been infiltrated by false teachers that were pointing people away from the truths of the gospel. So as Paul is instructing Titus how to equip the people on the island of Crete, he's given us instructions on how we are to live in the unchristian culture that we face. And here is the wonderful promise. God will do for us what he promises to do for them. When we feel weak and like we don't necessarily know what to do, God comes to our aid and gives us strength and shows us the way. When we come to the end of our resources, he comes to our rescue. And then we learn how to depend upon Jesus. And Titus 3 verses 1 through 8 tells us what to do and how to do it. And what is all grounded upon, which is the glorious, wonderful gospel of Jesus. So I want us to unpack these truths for us today. And as we do so, this is the way I want you to understand these eight verses. Every Christian should leverage his or her life so that we lead other people to the Lord Jesus. And we're going to see that very clearly in these eight verses is it challenges us to make sure that sharing the gospel with people who think differently from us in a culture that is turning away from the Lord should be our focus and should be at the center of our gaze at all times. And we're going to see that right out of the gate in Titus chapter 3. I want you to notice the very first word. The word there is to remind. It speaks to the fact that we need to be reminded of things. And just like if you think about soldiers that are training and basic training in the event that they will be sent off into the battle, there are drills that they have to commit to. I had friends, I've never participated in it, but I had friends who would always go off so many weeks and participate in the, in the reserves. Why? So that they would go to drill so that in the event that they would be called into action, they would be ready. You think about good sports teams. We like to cheer on our teams every, every season, whether they be football teams or basketball teams. They're only as good as what happens in practice as they learn the drills they need to do so that when the lights come on and it's time to play or when the battle rages, you're not reacting to things you've never seen, but you're responding the way that you have been trained. And so it is with believers of the Lord Jesus. It is why our coming together to receive the Word of God is so critical. We need to be reminded how to live for God as we face the challenges that we face in our culture. So that's where Paul begins. Remind them and listen to what he says. No matter how hard it is to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. He goes on to say to speak evil to no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, 
and to show perfect courtesy to all people. You know, when he gives us that understanding of how we are to then live, what he's really calling us to understand are the principles that will keep us from getting in the way when it comes time to share the gospel with others. He starts with this really interesting command. And when he says remind, know that it's not just in Titus 3 that you find this very hard and difficult command that we are to be submissive to rulers and authorities. You'll find this other places in the New Testament. Remember when Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22, verse 21? They were trying to pin him in a corner. Do we pay taxes to Caesar? And what did Jesus say? When it comes to the authorities, you give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, as you also give unto God what is God's. And then you find texts like um, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, that seem to echo what Paul says in Titus 3. Romans 13 says, Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And then even 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, that begin, Be subject to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, and then it concludes, for this is the will of God for you. This text explains very clear, along with these other passages in the New Testament, God does not call Christians to be political anarchists. We don't subvert the government, nor do we disobey it, but listen to me, church, unless it brings you into direct conflict with the commands of God. So when we read in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, the Paul and the apostles, when they stood before those who were accusing them wrongly, when they asked them to, sh to be quiet and to not speak the truth of the gospel, they said what in response? We don't obey man over God. We obey God rather than men. But I want you to hear me. When you're thinking about how does this apply in our cultural context today, even when we have to take our stand as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are in authorities over us, they know us, not just because of how we disagree with them, but at least as much, if not more so, they know us by the fruitfulness of our lives. They know that when it comes time for a community that is aching because of the sinfulness that is around us and the effects of that sin, we serve that community with eagerness. We are ready, as the text says, for every good work. We not only care about the hurting, we not only are heartbroken for the oppressed, we not only give sacrificially when given the opportunity, we are looking for opportunities to show a lost and dying world the glory and the beauty of the love of Jesus. So we don't just do these things because we have to. We do these things because we want to do them. When we speak of those who think differently than us, church, listen, we speak with gentleness. There's a kindness in what we say. We are intentional of making sure we don't stir up strife, as the text says. We live out Philippians 4, verse 5, that we always choose the way of reasonableness before others. We show humility in how we act. In every interaction, we remember what we're called to do, to extend to other people, to all people, perfect courtesy. Now, why do we do this? To protect us? Why do we do this? So that we can be 
people who think differently than us so that we can just be their friend or be their buddy? Well, I want to tease this out a little bit. We do this not for our preservation. We do it for our mission. We do it because Paul calls us to be like he is and follow his example that we become all things to all people so that we might, and here's the word, win some. Have you ever thought about that? Calling to win some? The word that we use is a description of how we are to live our lives in a winsome way. Do you know what that word means in the English? The word winsome is a word that means that we are attractive and appealing in our character. That we are drawing people in by the winsomeness. And have you ever noticed how that word goes together? We do, we are winsome so that we can win some. So we need to remember this. You know what's true? It's hard to win people to Jesus that you view of as your enemy. How in the world are you ever going to tell people about the love of Christ if you're fighting with them? We remember these principles. We live in these truths. And how do we really wrap our arms around this? No matter how bad it might get. You know what's true in Ephesians chapter 6? Our battle is never against flesh and blood. And we live our lives before others, always looking to the mission to be fulfilled. How can I love them? How can I show them who Christ is? in everything that I do, and in all that I say. That is how we're called to live. I love the way that C.H. Spurgeon was fleshing this out for his people. It just requires a level of humility that can only come from the Lord. And this is what Spurgeon said. Of people who live this way, listen to this. Is this true of us? He would wish to see others happy, even if he were unhappy himself. If he be in the depths of poverty, he is glad that everybody is not so pinched as he. If he has received unjust censure, he is willing to hope that there was some mistake. He is glad that everyone is not quite so unfairly dealt with. He rejoices in the praise of others and triumphs in their successes. What then, Spurgeon says, do you wince at this? Do you feel that you have not reached so far? May grace enable you to get into this spirit, for this is the spirit of Jesus. So we don't look at people as our enemies. We look at them as people for whom Christ died. People of whom Jesus loves. People who we're called to love too. But along with doing that and knowing what it is to follow out these opening two verses. When it comes to the gospel, we're going to win them to the Lord so we don't get in the way. We stay out of the way. We're next called to something else as we continue to read and is still in this vein of something we need to remember. Listen to what it says in verse 3. We ourselves were, and this is who we are. This description is all of our testimonies before we came to know Jesus. Listen to this. This might be hard to wrap your arms around. If you're like me and you were saved at eight, this is still your testimony, if you truly are saved, of who you were as a rebel before you came to Christ. This is a description of every single person in this room. When we talk about the brokenness wrought by sin, it is something we all know because we've all felt it. And the only rescue that we have experienced is Jesus in us. And we should never forget that. Listen to what Paul says. It should always be in our memory. For we are 
ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is something we should always remember. When you stop and you start to remember things, is this where your mind goes? Probably not. You probably do what I do. When we want to remember things, we want to remember good things, right? I, I was so blessed. Allie and I, this weekend, have had some friends come visit us from Kentucky, and we're so glad that they're here. And just last night, around the table, eating Allie's wonderful chicken pot pie and the incredible desserts that I picked up at McIntyre, which, by the way, I always ask for that job because when I go in, I pick something up that she doesn't know about. And we had a great time together. And while we were sitting around, we were reminiscing and we were remembering some of the great things that we just share in common. Some great times that we had together. And it's just right for us to do that at times. We were sharing with them a time that Allie and I came home from a three-week stay away. And how we were so blessed when people in our church just cared for us and took care of things around our house. And had our refrigerator filled with food for that night when we came in off the road. And even lunches for our girls to go to school. It was just an incredible gift. Those are things we like to remember. Some things we wish we didn't have to remember. But can I tell you, when it comes to our lostness, every one of us should do as Paul does often and remember our lostness. What is it like to feel miserable and hopeless apart from Jesus? What is it like to be so overcome by the appetites of our flesh we're feeding them at all costs, to be hated by others and hating everyone, to live a life without the love of Jesus in our hearts is something we should always remember because it reminds us of the condition of every single person outside of Christ. This is them. And they may not look it on the outside, but this is what's true on the inside. You see, along with remembering that people around us without Christ are not our enemy, when we remember things rightly, as verse 3 calls us to, we also remember something else is true. Not only are they not our enemy, they're not our projects. They're just like us. And if not for the grace of God, go I. The only difference in us and them, if there is a difference, is Christ in us. And it fuels us to share the gospel with people who so deeply need the Lord. To remember these things. So stay out of the way. Remember what life was like before you met Jesus. When your life was governed by all these awful pursuits that Jesus has so richly and wonderfully rescued you from. And the next thing we've got to do as we consider these truths is to invite people into the joy of salvation. I love what it says next in verse 4. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, isn't Jesus good? I was so thankful the other night in Adam's training for family ministry when he talked about how Christ is so lovely. Jesus is so good. He is so filled with loving kindness. When you think about the joy of salvation, it starts with you thinking deeply on the fact that God has appeared to us Because God cares so richly for us. And that's where any good gospel presentation begins. God loves us so much. He has revealed himself 
with loving kindness. He hasn't left us in this state that verse 3 describes, but He has made a way for us in His goodness and in His loving kindness. God, our Savior, Christ, has appeared. And not only does He care for us, but the text also tells us that God has saved us. Verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done in our righteousness, which, by the way, I don't care how good of works you do, even on our best day, any works we do in our own strength are only deserving of the condemnation of God because we're sinners through and through. We cannot save ourselves. It's not even worth trying. Our only hope is for Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So he went to a cross, and he died on that cross in our place. He was raised again on the third day, fulfilling the full work of redemption so that we could be saved. God cares for us, church. God has saved us in Jesus. This is the finished work of Christ in atonement. It's described on deeper into verse 6. He poured this work out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. But while the work of Christ is the work of atonement, there's also a work of the Holy Spirit that comes to us in the gospel. The whole trinity is involved in this incredible plan. And I want you to see what the work of the Holy Spirit does. It's the Spirit that brings the washing of regeneration and renewal. So the work of the Holy Spirit is regeneration in our lives and renewal. Jesus has come. He died on the cross, was raised from the dead. The Spirit, when He is in you, is what gives you the ability to be no longer dead in your sin, but to be made alive in Christ as the Spirit regenerates your heart so that you can believe in Christ and that you can know Jesus. The work of regeneration comes from the Spirit. It's a one-time act that you are raised to new life in Him. But not only is there a one-time work that the Spirit does, He continues to work in your life through renewal, growing you, the process of you becoming more and more like Jesus, leaving a life that you are dead in your sin, described in verse 3, entering into a life that you become more and more like what you will be for all of eternity, which leads us to the next part of this God cares for us in the gospel. He saves us. He cleanses us. He adopts us because for all of eternity we become his heirs. And this is so good if you get it, you want everyone to live in it. You want to invite anyone to experience this hope and this joy that only comes in Christ. So we invite others into the joy of salvation. And this is a beautiful passage that describes the wonder of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. Don't you long for people to live in the gospel? Oh, it's a joy. So we invite others into this joy of salvation. And then the text continues. Because it says in verse 8, this thing is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Church, we are not saved by our works. It's not our works of righteousness that saves us, as it says earlier in the text, but it's according to the work and mercy of Christ. But just because we're not saved by our works doesn't mean we're not then called to do good works. And if you have truly trusted Christ, you will live a life of good works, empowered by the Spirit to live for His glory. 
I love what it is to live life this way. I was just thinking about how to help you understand it. How to really get what it is to live a life of good works. And there were a few people that I reached out to this week just to ask them why they do the things that they do. We have some people doing amazing things for Jesus. I'm so thankful for my friends, the Pullins, and what God has done on Jamie Pullins' heart and given him a heart to go to a pregnancy center and give counseling to men about what it might be to be a dad in a time that they're thinking about doing anything but. And I said, why in the world, Jamie, do you do the things that you do there? And his answer was very simple. If I just know that when those opportunities come, that's exactly where I need to be. The Lord has grown that in Jamie's heart. To not pay attention to that would be for him to be disobedient to what God is doing in his life. But what a beautiful picture of obedience. Devoting his life to good works. I'm thankful for my friend Sean Winter and his wife Carly, members of our church that joined not too long ago, that moved over a thousand miles so that their mission field could be the campus of Georgia Tech. And every week they're reaching out to college students on that campus. And you ask them, why do you do the things that you do? How is it that God has blessed you because you're being faithful to him? And you know what they'll tell you? We've been amazed to see God's provision. Our relationships that we left a thousand miles away, remarkably, have only grown stronger Every day we're learning how to faith Jesus in a deeper way as we're depending upon him in a deeper measure for all not just the big things but the little things. They even told me that their marriage has gotten even stronger. What a testament of what happens when we devote our life to good works. My friends, Ryan and Allison Hooks, newer members of our church, who every year make it a purpose to go on mission trips all around the world and you ask them why do you go to those hard reaching places why do you do the things that you do in those different places it's because God has grown in them such a burden for those who are outside of Christ that they cannot help but go and respond in obedience when the Lord calls and it brings such fulfillment to their lives because they're being honest and open to whatever it is that God lays on their heart to do I reached out to Warren and Allison. I will always remember the stubs who have led our upward ministry for many years. I asked Warren one day when he was out there pushing around the field and getting it prepped for the next, I said, why do you do this every week, brother? He said, it might just give me the chance to tell one person about Christ this week. And he talked to me, he just shared back in the text how it brings some fulfillment and joy as he serves the Lord in these ways. Listen. We're not saved by our works, but we're saved to do them. And in a world that is turning further and further away from Jesus, we have to be obedient and devoting our lives to good works even more so than we ever have before. What a text. The world, it is a changing. We don't get angry. We follow Christ. We apply the gospel. We live in a way that is laid out for us in Titus chapter 3 because there are so many people in the city that need Jesus. So this guy named Jim came into my office. He was laughing, deacon of my church. I'll always remember Jim Skagg. And he came into my office and 
the men in our church, you've probably heard me tell this story, but the first church I pastored had this big old lawn, and the guys were on cutting crews, and honestly, it really didn't seem like service to them because they all got to ride zero-turn lawnmowers, and they rode them like go-karts. And they set them on their high settings, and they zipped around and would pop it up on two wheels, and they'd round the corner. Jim had been doing that. I'd been watching him doing it in the front lawn for about two hours. He came into my office, and he was just laughing at himself. And I said, Jim, what in the world is so funny? He said, Jeff, I've been out there on the lawnmower. Honestly, I've had a really good time out there. But while I was out there on the lawnmower, I've been doing this for two hours before I realized I didn't do a lick of good because I never dropped the blade. And I tell that story, sometimes people say, I'm glad he was laughing. Two hours of wasted time. If you're not devoted to good works, you might have a whole life that that's been true of. A life in which God has saved you, called you to be faithful to him, to live out each day for his glory, not wasting your time in frivolous things, but living your life for his glory in such remarkable ways to draw other people to his son, Jesus. And listen, I know it's getting harder. Do you think that's what we're going to stand before the Lord and say, God, it was hard? Seems like there's a parable about someone who did that and buried his talent. So it was given to the person who stayed faithful all the way through and it was that person that entered into the joy of the master. What are we going to do? Sit back and fuss? Point fingers at people as if they're our enemy when they're the ones that God has called us to reach? Or are we going to be faithful to walk in the Spirit? To bring people into a relationship with Jesus? To see the beauty of Christ and to long for others to experience it? To understand the way to change this city is first and foremost to preach the gospel and live lives that demonstrate his power. And see what God does with that. And this doesn't just come from my thoughts. But Titus chapter 3 says we ought to do in a world that so deeply needs Jesus. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And we're going to sing. And as we do, I just invite you to consider the truths that we've talked about today. That God calls us to live our lives in a way that pleases him, totally sold out for the gospel, leveraging our lives to tell people about Jesus. We can get in the way. We can forget what it was like to live a life apart from Christ and treat people like they're our projects instead of people that we love. We can neglect to invite people into the wonder of the gospel because we take it for granted. We can forget the calling that God has given our lives to devote ourselves to good works. I don't want that to be true of you. I want to the joy of the master. Father, show us the areas of our life that we need to submit to your reign. And if there's anyone here today that's never entered into this life filled with such purpose and joy, may today be the day that the work of Christ and the Spirit overcomes their life, that they are amazed at the glorious outpouring of Jesus and His work of atonement, making it so that they can have their sin forgiven and that your Spirit will give them new life, will grow them to be all that you want them to be. Father, may today be the day of salvation. If anyone here today needs Christ, I pray that 
Lord, they will confess with their mouth that you're Lord and believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead. Turn from their sin and trust in Christ and live for him as Savior and Lord. Father, thank you so much for these truths. In Christ's name we pray.